Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Christian Podcast, the conversation at the crossroads of faith and psychedelics. I'm Clint, your host, and I'm thankful and excited that you've chosen to join us. Enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 21 of the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Today, our guest is Bernardo de Quintavalle. Bernardo shares with us his journey from his childhood in the Midwest suburbs to college and the Marine Corps, to spending 20 years as a monk in a Benedictine monastery, and to finally as a business professional with a family and the founder of a new psychedelic fellowship organization. Bernardo shares with us his life story, his experiences with psychedelics, and how he uses the Enneagram personality assessment to help others through their own life journey. But before we are joined by Bernardo, I want to thank all of you listeners out there for sharing and supporting the show. Today, I would like to especially express my gratitude to John for letting me know there was an issue with the donation page on the website that was preventing people from donating. John, I very much appreciate you contacting me about this issue and for making a donation once the issue was resolved. So if you have also had trouble making a donation in the past, I would like to also express my gratitude to you and let you know that the donation function is now working properly should you wish to try again. That link is thepsychedelicchristianpodcast.com slash support. And with one of the computers I use to produce the show apparently now being inoperable, your contributions would be particularly helpful. So thank you all. Your financial contributions definitely help me offset the cost of running the podcast and are always welcome and appreciated. But even if a financial contribution is not something you're able to do right now, you can still participate in what we are doing here by subscribing and sharing the show with others. In fact, I'm asking each of you to please share an episode of the show that you have particularly enjoyed with someone this week. I understand that many of you are probably timid about letting others know that you even take an interest in the topic of psychedelics, and I respect that. But this podcast is not pro or con psychedelics. Although I personally am cautiously optimistic about the potential benefits of psychedelics, I also readily acknowledge the potential pitfalls and host a number of guests who actively oppose the use of psychedelics. The purpose of this podcast is to invite my fellow Christians to discuss the topic and politely share their thoughts and experiences on the topic with others. So share an episode this week and why you found the episode interesting. If you are comfortable doing so, share it on social media, and if possible, tag myself and my guest in your post. The more fellow Christians we have discussing the topic, the more likely we all are to reach a thoughtful conclusion. And now, without further delay, please join me in welcoming today's guest. Today we welcome Bernardo de Quintavalle for the Psychedelic Christian Podcast. Bernardo, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks, Clint. It's an honor to be here. It is indeed an honor to have you. Begin by telling us a little bit about yourself, about your early life, maybe something about your family of origin, maybe where you grew up. What was the uh, the spiritual environment? Well, sure. Well, I, I grew up in the Midwest in a kind of middle-class, upper-middle-class family in suburbia, and it was pretty chaotic. 
you know, my parents divorced when I was pretty young and there were remarriages and more divorces and more, re more remarriages. And it was difficult in a lot of different ways for me, but I didn't get a very strong spiritual grounding as a kid. You know, we would go to church for Christmas and Easter and occasionally in between, but it wasn't, uh, there was not a strong religious or I would say philosophical bent within my parents. And so I, I think I was felt pretty lost a lot of the time as a kid. And then probably my early teens, my best friend, his family was an evangelical fundamentalist Christian family and lovely people. And I really gave me a safe haven to hang out away from my family of origin in which I was very grateful for. But I did convert to, to evangelical Christianity for a while. You know, I had some difficulties with it as I kind of mature a little bit. Some of the theology didn't land with me very well, um, but they were lovely people and very kind to me, and I'm, and I'm very grateful for that. Gave me some real guidance, gave me some real direction and support. But then, you know, by the end of high school, I kind of moved into more of a agnostic atheist phase, then played at being a Buddhist for a bit without taking it very seriously. Went off to college, majored in philosophy and mathematics, and uh, really on a philosophical quest. And that's kind of the the, the basics, I would say, the, the foundational for my for my life trajectory. Okay. Eventually, you know, we'll get into the topic of psychedelics. But at that time, you know, when you're growing up, uh, what was your view of things like psychedelics and drugs in general and that of your, your family and your community? Was it pretty much the status quo, you know? Uh, egg in the frying pan thing? Or? Yeah, very much. <laughs> well, I, I actually had a very negative reaction because I had a family history of addiction. In my, there's a lot of addiction in my family. My aunt died of a drug overdose, I had a brain aneurysm from doing cocaine, an uncle who was an alcoholic and out of rehab his whole life. My father struggled with alcoholism his whole life. So it was, there was a lot of, of abuse. Um, my brother, I had an older brother who got involved with psychedelics at a very young age, and it really sent him sideways. It, it did a lot of damage for him. And so these were cautionary tales that were living examples right in front of me of why you would never want to go near this stuff. And so I, I had a really, really negative attitude towards all you know psychoactive illegal substances and had the just say no mentality banged into my brain. And, and that actually served me well for my youth. I, I, you know, it was probably better than getting involved too soon, but yeah, no, I, I didn't touch anything until well into my forties. So what, where did you do after, uh, after going to college? Well, so uh, while I was in college, I went off to Marine Corps officer candidate school. I, I went and trained with the Marines, thought that might be an interesting life career path. But then I realized that I had a lot of unresolved anger. So when you mix anger and an M16, it's just not a good combination. Mm -hmm. So maybe it would be a better life path that I might want to look for it. And um, I started to have a, a bit of a spiritual awakening. And it was through a mentor and a good friend who encouraged me to, to try of all bizarre and weird life paths, I went into monasticism and I became a Benedictine monk. And um, I was a monk for 20 solid years. And there were good things and bad things about that. But the, the spiritual calling was always sort of the, the core of my identity for my entire existence. And I thought if I was going to find the meaning of life or get any answers or 
figure this life thing out that a monastery was probably the best place to do it. So I took a shot at it. Oh, wow, that's very interesting. From <laughs> life in the military to life in the in the monastery. Um, can you briefly, you know, I, I come from a evangelical background as a child, and I just, to me, things like uh, Roman Catholicism, Anglicanism, though, you know, things that have monastic life was a very, uh, not only was it remote to me in my Christian experience, but it was also almost presented in a, in a negative light. Um, yeah. And I know, you know, you had your own personal experience uh, living and working in a monastery and that probably, I mean, it's probably different all over the world, but can you briefly just encapsulate what monastic life is like in a general way for people who don't even begin to understand that? Well, it, it, the weird thing about it is it's not that different from everyday life. I mean, you're still, you know, you're just living in community, which is actually in some ways harder than family life in certain ways. But, you know, it's a pretty regimented structure. You've got um, your community. We supported ourselves by working in academia as teachers. So I was uh, teaching in a high school, in a private high school during that those years. And um, so I had a career of sorts. So there's a job you got to get to and do that every day. And there's chores around the monastery. There's the cooking, the cleaning, everything you need to run a normal household. Plus you throw on top of that liturgical services, the prayers several times a day, and then just living in community and trying to learn to love God through the people in front of you um, and be of service to the world around you and hopefully have a deep contemplative practice at the same time. But oddly enough, I have more quiet time and more contemplative time now that I'm not a monk than I did while I was in the monastery because there was just so much that had to get done, right. you know, in a given day. So it was, it was pretty, it's pretty busy place monasteries. Okay. And um, that might give you a little bit of a flavor for it, but, it's something to be experienced for sure. Yeah, I appreciate that because I think the understanding amongst most people is that it's it's the opposite. They think it's very slow, quiet. You spend your time and you know personal time, quiet contemplation and prayer. It it's almost like just as busy as the normal workaday family life with the addition of all that you know extracurricular spiritual activity and meditation. So. Exactly. Uh, a lot busier probably than most of us would imagine. Yes. It was much to my surprise. Another potential falsehood that I'm, that some of us live under is that once you enter the monastery, you're there forever. So right. I assume a lot of people venture out to do other things in their lives. And obviously you did. How did, how did that kind of manifest? Well, I, I, I had planned to make it a lot. I was you know, it's like a marriage. You think you're going to do it forever. And then sometimes it just doesn't work out. And that was certainly the case for me. I got increasingly disillusioned by the community life. I think our, our community had many strengths, but some real weaknesses that over time became very dysfunctional. And, and I would say a bit neurotic being so cloistered, if you will, so insular. Um, it allowed, I, I think, some personality quirks of the folks at the top of the hierarchy to become unbalanced and less than helpful in the way they treated others. And so I thought, you know, there was always this hope in my mind that it would get better, but things got worse over time. And 
eventually to the point where it was completely intolerable. I just, I was so miserable and I was so unhappy and I just had to make a big change. And it was the most difficult thing I've, I've ever done in my entire life to, to leave the monastery. It really was really painful, um, but glad I did it. And I'm just sorry that I waited so long. I probably should have left 10 years earlier, but you know, I made a commitment and I felt like I needed to stick it out until the, the point where I just couldn't. Right. Right. That's understandable. I'm sure monastic institutions are just like every other human institution. Sometimes human dynamics, family dynamics, you know, they're just, this is not the right place and the right time for us sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. where, where did you go from there? Well, I'm going to stay a little bit vague about that just right. because I'm obviously, uh, I'm doing this podcast under a pseudonym. Bernardo de Quintavalli is not my real name, but uh, it's, he's a, Bernardo was the first follower of St. Francis of Assisi. So he's a historical figure that's near and dear to my heart. But after that, I went into sort of a professional career. Um, I'm now, I would say, kind of in, a, in an executive level position and um, working in the corporate world. And I'm a partner at a firm and doing great work that I love to do. So um, that's my day job. And you know, working mostly working with environmental and social justice issues would be would be a simple way of putting it. Right. Yeah. Well, that sounds like not too far removed from the typical American lifestyle. So, how does where, where does psychedelics come into the picture? Well, um, <laughs> that's a good question. So, you know, like I said, I did I did never tried anything. I didn't smoke a joint. I didn't, you know, nothing until after I left the monastery, really. And then a friend of mine introduced me to psilocybin to to magic mushrooms and. I got more spiritual growth and development out of five grams of mushrooms than I did from 20 years of being a monk. It was that simple. Like I, I learned more about myself. I learned more about the divine and my relationship to that divinity through that one experience, that one deep journey, than all of the theologizing, all the books. I mean, I, and I have studied all the books like East and West and Wow, it it was it was a radical and revolutionary experience for me, and very healing because I, I I left the monastery in a very broken and bitter space, and to be opened up to love and compassion and forgiveness and truth and beauty and all those things, uh, to be sort of flooded with them in that powerful psychedelic experience, made it clear to me that this was something I needed to explore more and was basically a rabbit hole that I went down into and am still exploring because it, it has infinite depth. Uh, how, how long ago was that? That was in 2017. Okay. Yeah. Was your, was, would you characterize that experience as overall positive? Um... Oh yeah. Uh, und undeniably positive. I mean, and difficult. I mean, there's also cathartic in the, you know, difficult in the sense that the, that it brought up a lot of of difficult emotions and, and insights. So it wasn't all. It was all positive. Yes, doesn't mean parts of it weren't hard. Does that make any sense? Yeah, like yeah, there, sure. parts of it were really challenging, because they're showing you. They showed me parts of myself that I I maybe had ignored or not looked at or or made me look at the reality of my life path um, with more clarity and to see other people in my life with more clarity. 
And some of those truths were very painful, but they're also very necessary and very healing. And so it was all very positive and doesn't mean it's always easy. Right. Right. So how did that propel you forward? Um, Obviously that was probably a little bit uh, rocked your world to use a kind of a (laughs) modern phrase. Um, Right. Did you pursue more psychedelic experiences? Were you were you very cautious? I mean, what what kind of literature was out there? What did you? How did you begin to explore those ideas? Well, I I was very mistrustful of authority figures at that point, and I was very reluctant to listen to anybody or take too much advice because that was one of the things that got me in trouble for much of my existence was trying to look to other people for answers. And what psilocybin showed me is that the answers were inside me. They weren't outside. There was nowhere to go outward. It was about turning inward and making that inward turn. And so I I did some research online, which is confusing because the internet is full of misinformation. So I did a little research there, but not a lot. And then just started steadily increasing my dosage on the psilocybin to see what were my what were my upper limits what was comfortable what was uncomfortable what was helpful what was not and then i started looking at other sacraments or medicines how what terminology varies depending on who you talk to right for me they're sacraments they're they're, they're sacred and so moving beyond just psilocybin well i think this is this is just one of many options like why stop there and so i felt like i I spent a good year or so working with psilocybin and then learned about DMT and that really captivated me. So I started researching that a little bit uh, to pair it and how to smoke it, how to vaporize it essentially. And that is really a much more powerful experience than psilocybin. And that was a fascinating experience from, I would say a good year or two of working with a combination of you know, not together, but those two medicines, those two sacraments, psilocybin and DMT. And then I moved into, once I felt like I, you never master these, these, these sacraments, you never exhaust their capacity for teaching you stuff. But you, I did reach a point where I felt like there was diminishing returns. Like mm-hmm. I could do another journey and it could be enjoyable, but it, I didn't feel like I was learning a ton. And and once that learning curve started to decrease on each medicine, I would kind of look to the next sacrament to see what else might be available. And so then I turned to what's called 5-MeO-DMT. That's also called the toad is its organic form or bufo, or it has a bunch of different names. My my preference is called the, called the God molecule is its best nickname, which is probably the most powerful psychedelic that we have available, arguably. And then that really took my psychedelic experience to another level. That really became the the one psychedelic or sacrament that really I would say I worked very hard to master. You know the the, the guiding aspect of that became something that both for myself and for others became for me the the heart uh, the pinnacle of my psychedelic experiences to date because it reliably produces complete ego dissolution, mm-hmm. and it just it's like you're the drop in the ocean, and now you're the, your sense of being your drop disappears and now you're the ocean. To say it's like, it's as if, and it's important to caveat all these experiences with the word as if, but it's as if you become one with everything everywhere all at once at its peak. And that is a profoundly mystical, profoundly healing um, and holy and sacred moment. You can call it enlightenment. 
you can call it moksha, you can call it liberation, but it's a, you know, it's a state of consciousness that you can induce. So that has been really for me, the, the heart of my psychedelic experiences. And then I moved out from there. And then I started working with MDMA and then with ketamine. And then there's a bunch of others that I kind of made it, I kind of made it my, my bucket list was to try everything at least once. <laughs> Anything I get my hands on, I want to try it at least once because they all do something very different. Um, mm -hmm. They all give you a different window into the nature of consciousness. And that's why I find them fascinating. So some are more useful than others. Everyone has their own metabolism. Everyone has their own personal preferences. But I've sort of been working my way through the whole list, which includes 2CB, 4ACO, DMT. There's San Pedro. There's a whole, you go down the, go down the, the menu, you know, LSD, you name it. I, I've, I've tried to try everything I've been able to source reliably. Wow. Thank you for being forthcoming with that. that that's a pretty incredible list you got there. I've got, <laughs> <laughs> I've got, I've got a few uh, questions about DMT. Uh -huh. um, I've never used DMT. And so, and I know sometimes it's hard to really encapsulate, you know, these experiences into words, but mm -hmm. can you try to explain the difference between uh, DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, and also orally active DMT like found in ayahuasca. Yeah. You break that apart just a little to the best of your capacity. Sure. It's a, it's a, it's almost impossible to, to do justice to, to the, dis the distinctions because each of them is a unique experience and each experience is rather ineffable. It sort of defies encapsulating in words, but I would say this, let's, let's, let's first talk about DMT vaporized and DMT oral, which is ayahuasca, the experiences are very similar. I mean, it's the same, it's the same sacrament. You're, you're getting vaporized. It, it's very fast acting. It hits very quickly, very powerfully, and then it, it's over very quickly. The whole thing is about anywhere from five to 25 minutes-ish is the whole DMT experience for one pole on a, on a pipe or whatever you're using, typically. Now you can chain smoke it, which is also, you can extend the experience by, by re-upping as much as you like, but essentially I would say DMT is probably the most psychedelic of all the sacraments of, of all the psychedelics out there. It has the most intense visuals and it kind of blasts you almost, it's almost like you're being strapped into the millennium Falcon and hitting, going into warp speed and getting launched into an alternate universe filled with crazy complex fractal hyperbolic geom geometries that you can't even begin to describe in typical human language but it's extremely beautiful it's extremely the, the beauty of it the the sense of acceptance and love and there's a deep cosmic sort of and every journey is different so you can't it's hard to like mm -hmm. say well what's it like every time everyone every journey is different but they all have that that wild, intense visual patterns of, of varying levels of intensity and deep, deep insights, as well as, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. I, I can't, more th than that is probably unhelpful. Ayahuasca is when the, you drink DMT, but you drink it in combination. It's not just DMT. What makes ayahuasca so unique is it's a combination of two different vines, two different plants, one that has DMT in it, and one has what's called an MAOI, which is a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, 
And the MAOI, what that does is it changes the gut chemistry in your stomach to allow the DMT to be absorbed through your gut lining and be enter your bloodstream, go to your brain and, and activate. But the downside of that is that because it's changing the gut chemistry, it, it creates a lot of stomach upset for most people. It creates a lot of nausea, purging, either vomiting or diarrhea. And so it, it has that sort of physical, what we, what we call a body load that can be unpleasant for many people. And then the experience when the DMT hits, it's much softer. It's, it's still very powerful, but it's maybe 10% strength of what you would get when you take it vaporized, mm -hmm. but it lasts four to six hours. So it's a less lower level intensity, but a longer experience when it's orally activated versus smoking it, which is much more intense, but much shorter. So that's the, that's the quick distinction, I would say. And they both have their uses and they, and everyone has their preferences. So let me pause there before I go into 5-MeO. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I think that's helpful. It's it's my understanding that many plants contain DMT, mm -hmm. and it, but because we have that enzyme in our stomach, that is it, it basically breaks down the DMT and it never becomes psychoactive. Right. And so with the initiation of that MAOI inhibitor, uh, that that allows the body to, uh, or I guess prevents the body from breaking down that molecule and thereby making it psychoactive right. um, in the ayahuasca, for example. Correct. So so both of those, you would say, differ from 5-MeO, though. Completely. They're almost exact opposites. You might, you might think of them as fraternal twins. Okay. They take you in the exactly opposite direction. Okay. Um, so 5-MeO, so where DMT takes you out into the universe, so to speak, and has this intense visuals, 5-MeO, it's like it brings the whole universe inside to you with very little visuals, except like a you might get a bright white light. A, there's a sort of sense of like merging into this cosmic oneness, but there's not a lot of visualization that comes with 5-MeO. But it, there's always an observer. You, you still maintain your frame of reference that allows you to say, this is me and this is me observing something not me. Mm -hmm. With 5-MeO, subject-object can be obliterated completely. There's no sense of like Bernardo, right? right? Whoever I am, there's no sense of Bernardo there, but there is infinite awareness, infinite presence. It's almost like the whole universe comes inside you and then blows you, blows you out completely. Um, again, that's, that's a very inaccurate description of it. And everyone's different and every journey is different. In a nutshell, that's the best I can do to give you a, a quick tourist guide to right. the differences between right. those different medicines. And that seems that seems to, to correspond with with what I've heard from from others as well on those. It's it's just incredibly challenging to encapsulate those. I mean, even if you share your own personal experience, yeah. someone else using the same medicine could have a completely different experience. But and you'll it, have a completely different different experience. The next, the next day, time. Did, okay. Right. So, but it, it does seem there are definite uh, landmarks, so to speak. You know, yeah. Everybody, to some degree, has a you know a similar trajectory, although your personal experience may differ. That's right. that's what I gather. Yep, they each have their own flavor. Right. 
Well, you know, it it's very interesting to hear hear your story because so often our view of someone who's tried a lot of different psychedelic medicines is the burnout hippie, you know, disconnected from reality, dysfunctional in their relationships and their career. That doesn't seem to have affected, affected your ability to perform daily tasks of family responsibilities, work responsibilities. You know, you look like a perfectly put together gentleman. You, you speak articulately. Um, so, how would you explain that to people? Because there's still, and, and I, I think it's warranted, you know, I don't think we should uh, fill our bodies with substances with reckless abandon, but it appears to me, the more people I meet in this space, it doesn't seem, I think given the right personal context, spiritual framing, responsible approach, it doesn't seem to be as dangerous and detrimental as we've been told. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't definite negative potentials and some people have very negative side effects and life trajectories when they get involved yeah. with these medicines. But yeah. maybe you could riff on that a little bit and just explain maybe why we've reached that conclusion. Well, I think a lot of it is just caricatures in the media, right, of how we've been the war on drugs about and also the people that we see representing the movement, shall we say, mm. people who are most vocal. Well, maybe here's a thought. I'm, I'm gonna. I don't know. The simple answer is I don't know. But maybe another way of looking at it is because of the war on drugs. I think for a long time the people who were attracted to psychedelics were sort of the dropout culture, right? Mm. It was the Timothy Leary, you know, turn on, tune in, drop out. So who does that attract that message? It tend it probably historically it didn't attract the best and the brightest and the most motivated and ambitious people mm. in the crowd. And, and it so, polarizes the opposite. Yeah. Right. And so I would I have many flaws, um, but being unmotivated is probably not one of them. Um, lacking ambition is probably not one of them. And so I think, unfortunately, we it's just how the cultural messaging around these substances has been presented that it was who was attracted to them in the first place. And so it became almost a stereotype that had a lot of justification because of the way the people who were most vocal about using these, these medicines were behaving. And so actually, these are the kind of things that are so powerful, that are so transformative and so wondrous and mysterious and capable of positive change on the individual and cultural level that we should be calling forth the best and the brightest to be exploring these these sacraments and figuring out how to use them to best effect in our civilization. And I think that's where we're starting to get to. But I think a lot of it's just been who 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 was attracted them in the, to them in the first place because of the our cultural war on drugs. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, it provides that like negative case study that's kind of undeniable, you know, when you look at what, what you're shown through the media and um, negative family experiences and things like that, it tends to, you tend to conclude that it's obvious, but, right. but not necessarily if the proper individuals and the proper context are in place, may, maybe, maybe that's not the way it has to be. Yeah. And we also don't have very good containers where people can go and experiment with these sacraments in a, in a healthy, safe way, where, there's a, where they have the right set and setting. 
where they doing it with the right mindset in the right physical setting with the right support with the right integration the right preparation because if you do them in the wrong set and setting yeah of course it's going to be a difficult a terrible experience like this is and i'm sure your listeners probably are familiar with those terms set and setting right what is the mindset that you're going into it with and what's the physical setting within which what's the container within which you're doing it and if you get those things wrong and substance of course matters too so set setting substance you get any one of those things wrong because they're so powerful they have that capacity for tremendous damage and because we haven't culturally built those containers of course people are going to be using them in the wrong ways and then that's going to have some pretty negative outcomes for people and my family is a good example my brothers are my older brother is a good example i could tell his stories and they're quite horrific. And there's there's lots of cautionary tales out there to that effect. Yeah, they're abundant. They are indeed. Um, well, so what other um, aspects of life and psychology and philosophy did this um, understanding of psychedelics give you for other ways to frame life and human human understanding and and spiritual life and the life life as a Christian even? Hmm. Well, that's a big question. Um, right. Yeah, you you take that and run with it however you, you feel suitable. Well, it certainly blew open my conceptions of doctrine and dogma, like to understand that doctrine is important because it builds, helps you have a container. And it's also something that it's like a scaffolding that helps you build a framework for orienting yourself towards reality. But it, at some point, that that needs to go away. Like it, it has its place and then it also has to be transcended. So... It's more about helping you have the experience of the divine and, and having a framework for making sense of it. But once you have the experience, the doctrine gets, I don't ever want to dismiss it, but it can get very stultifying. It can really get in the way. Maybe there are things in religion and philosophy and psychology that give us a way to frame our psychedelic experiences. Oh, sure. So, so well, one thing... We, we talked a little bit about this before the, the podcast is there's a psychological tool that I've found very, very useful. It's called the Enneagram mm -hmm. and it's a personality assessment kind of tool that it's gained a lot of popularity in pop culture. But what I didn't realize is, is that it was actually kind of conceived of and, and invented by psychonauts. It was a group of psychedelic explorers who first sort of really, I mean, it has ancient roots. It goes back thousands of years. But what the Enneagram is, I mean, it has so much depth to it, but essentially it posits that there are nine core archetypal structures for your ego. Like if you think of think of your ego like a car you're driving around in, like you're, every day your, your consciousness has to be housed inside of an ego container, a shell, right? Mm -hmm. And there's only so many ways to make an ego shell and have it function effectively, right? Just like there's only so many ways you can design a car and still have it function effectively. Mm -hmm. Now, everyone has their own unique year, make, and model, but there's sort of broad categories, you might say. Like there's SUVs as one category. There's you know, sports cars as one general category. Family sedans, another broad general category, right? And that although everyone has a unique ego, everyone has a unique personality, you can kind of plug everybody into this general, one of these nine archetypes. So Ennea, Gram, Ennea means nine in ancient Greek. Gram means drawn. So 
the anagram literally means nine things drawn. So you have these nine sort of think of them as points on a circle, right? You draw them on a circle and you get a figure in it. And then there's all kinds of interesting relationships between them. But what really became clear to me when doing psychedelic work and now working as a guide, I, I do moonlight as a, I guide people on psychedelic experiences is like to understand how their ego was created. What's the basic structure of their personality? And, and that's what the Enneagram can tell you. And there's a whole long explanation for why the Enneagram works. Like I could, I could give you that whole lecture if you wanted it, but there is a, there's a solid psychological explanation for why these patterns have to occur. And it doesn't tell you like where you're going to take your ego. Like if your ego is like the car metaphor, you can drive your car anywhere you want, right? You can mm. go anywhere, pick up any passengers. It's not deterministic about your fate, but if you're, if you're driving a Humvee, you probably don't want to park it into a compact spot, right? Mm. And if you've got a compact car, you probably don't want to take it off-roading. It's not really what you were designed for. So that's why understanding your Enneagram type is so helpful. So I'm not sure how to like pull that together for your audience, except to say the most important thing that I've discovered is that what the Enneagram will tell you is what your greatest fear is. And if I know what your greatest fear is, that's probably the cause of most of your suffering in your life. That's self-created. The, all the self-created suffering that we generate in our existence is probably coming from that core wound, this core trauma that you had in your childhood that created your personality structure. And so when you take someone on a psychedelic journey, if you're trying to heal them of some issue, if there's some problem they're trying to work on, what can be very useful when it's done in the right set and setting is to guide someone into that fear, mm -hmm. right? And then through it and then out the other side can be one of the most profoundly healing and spiritually meaningful experiences of a person's life. So that's kind of gives you a sense of, I don't know where even if you want to pull that apart or you want me to go deeper into any aspect of that. Maybe a little bit. Uh, I've just only begun to explore this, the, the Enneagram concept. But as I've begun reading about it, this may be helpful to the listeners. What helped me kind of frame it, and I don't know that these things overlap in any way, but I think culturally people might have a more of a reference point for this. I thought about it like the way people will ascribe uh, certain attributes to people based on their Zodiac sign. Mm -hmm. So someone may act a certain way and someone may say, well, you know, they're a Scorpio or a Gemini, you know, and we kind of sort of know what that means because the way we manifest in our personality, it tends to have these categorizable types. Mm -hmm. And we also, we also use it in ways like personality types, we might say, well, that person's an introvert and we all kind of know what that means. So maybe if we all collectively understood the Enneagram, Enneagram um, we would understand where we and others fall. Like, you know, instead of saying they're a Gemini or a Sagittarius, we might say, well, you know, he's a number two. Mm -hmm. um, and then that would give us a reference point for that person's strengths and their weaknesses. Exactly. So just like the Hummer has a strength and that you can probably go off-roading with it. 
probably not the fastest or most agile um, automobile on the road. So right. maybe uh, if we understood what our own personal proclivities are, that might help us better understand ourselves and others. And anytime you're in a personal relationship with someone, be it a, a friendship or a sibling or a spouse, I think if you had a if you had an archetype where you could understand what motivates their fears, their insecurities, their passions, that might give you some insight and in how you can best be there for them mm -hmm. and how you can best communicate to them your own person, your your own needs based on your understanding of yourself. And maybe if they had that understanding of your archetype, maybe they could in turn, you know, interpret your thoughts and actions and words more effectively. Is yeah, that fair? It. That's exactly right. That's very well stated. And it helps to understand what you're likely to encounter on a psychedelic journey. And it's not just your greatest fear, but what's your hope? What's your strengths? What's your weaknesses? The Enneagram could tell you all of these things. And they might surprise you. You might not be aware of these aspects of yourself because they're embedded in the construction of your consciousness. You, you don't know what it's like not to perceive reality through this lens of your archetype. And so you, it's the one thing you can never see. You can't get out of your car and look around it, right? So you almost need someone to hold up a mirror and, and show it to you for the first time. They might realize, oh, that's what I'm driving around in. This is the vehicle my ego in, a, in broad strokes looks like. And then it's extremely helpful for everyday life. And of course, extremely helpful for unpacking and understanding what's happening with psychedelics. Because what a psychedelic is doing, it, they all do different things. They're all unique. But the common denominator for any psychedelic experience to me is that they're giving you a conscious experience of your unconscious mind. And the Enneagram is the roadmap to your unconscious mind. So now you have a map for the journey, a framework within which you can help explain and understand all the stuff that's coming up from your unconscious when you're journeying on a psychedelic. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And your, your car analogy makes a lot of sense. Rarely do any of us go looking for an automobile. You know, we, we look for something very specific, you know, based on our own personal or family needs. And so like uh, we don't get the opportunity to choose our personality, but um, it is helpful to know if, you know, you're going to be tomorrow, whether you're going to be driving a Ford or a Maserati, you know, it definitely is is helpful. I don't think it's in the number 40 is magic or anything. I think a lot of a lot of times people experience this maybe in their late 20s or their 50s, but Somewhere between, you know, 30 and 50, you begin to learn a lot about yourself. I don't know if it just takes that much time and experience and button, beating your head against the wall and uh, knocking your toes and elbows on everything. But it's like you begin to recognize your own personal patterns, but it's still kind of a mystery. But and I think we know it, like you said, with the mirror, you know, sometimes we have to have a mirror held up so we can actually see something about ourselves. We we tend to readily notice it in others. You know, we, we know what makes that person happy or moody or upset. If we knew what those, what our own triggers were, that might be very helpful. So it sounds to me like you use that. So you have foreknowledge about the person you're, you're assisting in the psychedelic journey. So you know what to look for and where they might go emotionally, spiritually. Um, and that gives you some guardrails maybe to work within 
Did yeah, you, exactly. I don't want to necessarily say use one particular case in point, but could you possibly walk, walk us through how that might work? Well, sure. I mean, I can talk about myself, maybe that just to, okay. to keep it sure. very specific. Um, so my Enneagram type, I'm a type three. The, the numbers are, are irrelevant. They just, they're just placeholders. There's no good numbers. There's no bad numbers. There's no hierarchy. A higher number isn't better than a lower number or anything like that. It's just a naming system. So mm -hmm. there's nine types. Uh, type three has a nickname. It's often called the performer. So the performer, what categorizes a type three as a general archetype, is someone who in their childhood probably experienced a lot of shame growing up. And so they were wounded. We call it, it's called a childhood wound, that there's a necessary wounding that we all have to have that differentiates us from our parents, from our caregivers, like our, our mom and dad in particular, right? So in order for you to separate emotionally and psychologically, to have a unique identity, there needs to be some sort of negative emotions that come in in your childhood that force you to distance yourself and pull away from your parents. And it has to be negative emotions because positive emotions will reinforce your connection to your caregivers, right? It just reinforces your codependence because an infant is completely codependent on its mother, right? When it's born, it doesn't even have a sense of self separate. Subject object isn't even clear for some time. And I could go into this in great detail, but for a type three, basically what happened is they differentiated and were pushed away from their parents through shame. Essentially what that shame did for the type three is gave them a, a fundamental fear that they're basically worthless, that they have a sense of worthlessness at the core of their, of their identity. And so what happens with the type three is in order to overcome that fear of worthlessness, they look for approval from society, from others, from the world around them. So they become high performers. They tend to want to achieve a lot. And so in the car metaphor, I would call the three the race car, right? Mm -hmm. They're trying to win the race, get the gold medal, get the ribbon, get the gold star from their teacher, get the pat in the backs. They're looking constantly for validation from the world around them. And so that gives you an understanding of, well, why do I have to do all these extreme stuff? Why am I always pushing myself to, to achieve more and more? Because it's trying at heart to overcome that inner feeling of, of worthlessness. And so what is interesting about it and why it's helpful is because what we talk about in our in our community, so, so we haven't really talked about this much yet, but I did start my own entheogenic church. So I do have a church community that I founded recently around these sacraments. So what we talk about in helping people and, and guiding people is what's your deepest pain and what's the pain behind the pain, right? And so looking at my deepest pain, well, there was a lot of abuse and trauma in my childhood, right? Um, and in, in my young adult life too. But a lot of that suffering came about because I was so desperate for the approval from others, right? So I can look at a lot of the troubles I've gotten into in my life and go back to them and go, well, where did that come from? Well, what was the, what was my deepest pain? Well, okay, there was these very abusive situations I allowed myself to get into, but that wasn't the pain behind the pain. The pain behind that pain was the any type, the archetype, that basic core wound, that sense of worthlessness that tied my sense of validation to the approval of others. And when those people wanted things for me that maybe weren't healthy or good for me, 
I didn't have the courage to stand up and say no or, or push back in a, in a healthy way. So that gives you a sense of like, well, what are the struggles that you have to go through? And then when people have difficult psychedelic experiences, a lot of it's this trauma that comes up, right? It's that they're facing darkness inside themselves and it goes back to the trauma they've incurred in life. And then almost always, not always, but reliably, you can trace it back to their enneotype, to their core childhood wound that put them in the circumstance that created the trauma. Does that track for you? Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. So um, I'm beginning to draw all these practical conclusions. Right. And I know we can't flesh this out to the nth degree, but right. I just, it, it made me realize when you were explaining that why sometimes we see people who have repetitive toxic relationships mm-hmm. and they keep they keep finding the same type of person. You, mm-hmm. you think you finally left the abuser that fits mm-hmm. a certain stereotype. And a month later, you're back with another person who has the exact same characteristics, you know, and this is like rinse and repeat over and over. And it's because that person has a void they're trying to feel, or there's certain things about their personality that drive them toward that particular solution, um, you might say. Right. But they don't even, they don't even know it about themselves. Right. And so that shows you the unconscious assumptions about reality that you're, they're motivating you, that are driving you, that are pushing you all the time. The reasoning for this is complicated, and I can't explain it entirely here, but essentially, in order for your consciousness to exist, for your ego to exist, for self-awareness to exist, this childhood wound came first. And so the childhood wound is what created your ability to perceive reality in a subject object, in an I vow to have a sense of self separate from everything else. And so that wound is unconscious. You can't see it because it's the thing that allows you to see reality in the first place. Mm-hmm. It's the lens through which you perceive everything, but you're completely unaware of it, right? It's like the car windows you're looking out of. You've never been outside the ego shell of your car that you're driving around in. So you don't know what the tint of those windows happens to be or the angle or the shape or the right. how they're limiting your perspective. And so someone has to point that out to you. So the Enneagram shows you what that limitation is. And psychedelics actually can pull you out of that car shell for a little bit. It actually can help you step out of the car, your, your ego's in, temporarily look around and then pop you back down in. And you go, oh, ah, oh, okay. This is, this is a wider, there's a bigger reality here that I can't, perceive, right? You can expand your consciousness beyond those limitations and they come back, but then you can hold those limitations more lightly. It also helps me understand why so many people have a negative psychedelic experience. If, if your, your lenses are taken off mm-hmm. and then you're looking not, you know, not through your own lenses, but almost like every other lens imaginable at once, mm-hmm. that could be very uh, destabilizing destabilizing thank you <laughs> kept wanting to say uh distracting but yeah destabilizing like because your whole framework the way you understand the world the scaffolding it's not that it's wrong it's just the only way you've ever seen the world right and then if you see that 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 was just you viewing things through a certain lens but then there's this enormous breadth mm-hmm. of, of ways to conceptually understand the universe 
And then you and then you're dropped right back into your lenses, your frame of reference. But in the back of your mind, you know that's that's not concrete. You begin to question everything. And that's right. I, I think that's why maybe people make rash decisions out of fear or or possibly the the opposite. Maybe a person had a extremely positive experience, but again, not having a proper framework to integrate it. They decided to do something very ambitious and exciting afterwards, and it could go either way, or you could just eventually nestle right back into your status quo. Right. No, that's that's exactly right. I guess that's where appropriate integration uh, comes into place. Yeah. And that's why, you know, the the integration is key, right? Just because you had the experience, if you don't find a healthy way to bring that back into your daily life, it might've been an interesting moment, but how did it? much did it serve you? And also the other thing is that there's a lot of things that we don't want to look at. So that when it it pull you out of your, your normal limited conception of reality, it shows you all these wider views, but it might show you a view on yourself that you never saw before. And it might make you confront trauma that you've never wanted to confront before that you've blocked or just never want to look at. And then grief or sorrow or sadness, and then you get hit with it because you've been avoiding it for so long. And then it, it's like a, a jack in the box. Like you pop the lid off that and it just surprise, right? Mm-hmm. You get hit in the face with something you've intentionally repressed or pushed back or, or needed to repress because it was too painful. You weren't equipped or in a safe space where you could deal with it and, right. and needed to just put that in the proverbial hurt locker, what they used to call mm-hmm. the Marines, right? The hurt locker, if you remember the movie by that name, right? Stuff it down, don't look at it. Well, psychedelics will pop that lid off for you. And um, that can be more reason why things can be very difficult on a journey. Yeah. We, we compartmentalize almost out of necessity, you know, mm-hmm. survival uh, right. drives us to do that. Right. But over, over the lifespan, that compartmentalization can have a very negative uh, impact on us. Yeah. I got, you know, the more I think about it, that's kind of what happened to me. And I guess I was fortunate to integrate it positively my first psychedelic experience in my youth, you know, all through my childhood and teen years, I was a very uh, introverted person. You know, I wasn't I wasn't a social butterfly. I wasn't the guy who was the life of the party. You know, I was quiet and content to be on the outside of of everything that was going on. And in my first psychedelic experience, I recognized that about myself. And at that point, I realized it could be a choice. I could choose to engage or not, mm-hmm. you know, whereas before it's almost like the engagement wasn't even an option. You mm-hmm. know, that was a closed door to me. And I realized that in many circumstances, that way of life was not serving me. There were, there were situations where I needed to engage and there were things in my own life uh, that I needed to engage. Yeah. And so for me, it was very helpful because it allowed me to come out of that shell and start engaging with people and with communities that I wouldn't have had I had I remained in my shell. And and those were healthy communities. You know, that was those were church communities. Those were good people that I decided to engage with. To some degree, my insulatory framework actually kept me from enjoying the benefit of of Christian community. Yeah. Well, well I'm glad you had that experience. I'm glad it opened you up. That's wonderful. Well, tell us a little bit about this community you're building, if, if, if that's something you're willing to share. Um, 
what's the i guess the elevator speech like how would you how would you describe it yeah so at some point i got really tired of doing journey work by myself i i actually prefer to do journeys on my own for the most part i get a little intimidated being around other people it can be scary these i call them entheogens you know psychedelics and entheogens are you can use those words interchangeably uh, and theogen means God manifesting, which is a term I like a little bit better, but either one's fine. And so I started sharing these psychedelic medicines with some friends of mine, uh, many of whom were still in religious life or in religious communities or in the church. And it became a real source of community for me. Like I, I was longing for community. I felt like I was very much isolated and alone because I didn't know anybody in the psychedelic community. I didn't have anyone who helped to guide me or to teach me how to kind of find my way with this stuff, which was partly intentional on my part, but also just because of the lifestyle I live, you know, I wasn't really plugged into that psychedelic world until recently. And so I started having regular gatherings with some friends where small groups where we, we would get together and do journey work together and explore. And over time, they became quite popular and they became a real thing. And so we would have pretty good sized groups would want to come together and do this over either a day or a weekend or even longer retreats over several days. And it became clear to me that there was a real risk I was putting myself at legally by doing this. And it was my wife who really said, hey, is there a way we could make this more stable? And what about starting a church? Which I was so opposed to. I was so like that idea of that felt somewhat heretical. But over time, it became the obvious choice to really codify what we're doing, to have real rules and, and have real intentionality, which we always have intentionality, but to like really put it down. And so the past year has been a process of, of forming this church and working with some of the best minds I can contact about how to do it, working with good lawyers to make sure that it's legally structured in an appropriate way and that we're following the rules of the law. And we just launched it probably, we really only got it, the legal stuff nailed down about two months ago. And now we're really rolling and doing it well. So that that was sort of the, that's the cliff note story. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been a source of great joy for me to have my own church and to have community and to have a container, to have a real sacred container for these sacred medicines. Yeah, that's uh, that's part of what drove me to start the podcast. I might have known one other person who used psychedelics and had a, a similar, you know, Christian thought process as I did. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought they're just not even necessarily use them just to talk about it. I, I just didn't know any other Christian that I could sit down, have a coffee or a beer with and talk about their last mushroom experience. You know, that just wasn't, that wasn't available. And I thought, well, not, not only if I start a podcast, well, I'll get the benefit of sharing that community with another individual, but then uh, all of those of us scattered around the world out there who also don't have a community that would understand the context for such a conversation, they'll be able to enjoy that and participate on some level. So that desire for community, it's a real positive driver to get you to build incredible things. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's been great. And um, and, I, and I I would say if it wasn't for psychedelics, I probably wouldn't be a Christian anymore. Like they really brought me back to my, like I, I really, when I left the monastery, I was done with Christianity. I was so bitter. 
I was like, I don't want anything to do with this nonsense ever again. And then it was my psychedelic journeys that showed me that these are important symbols and there's important mythology here that's deep in my structure of my consciousness that I'll never shake and never want to shake that guide me in a very helpful way. And that rejecting them or throwing it all out would be, you know, literally throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So I'm very grateful for that and grateful to have a community that, that can support me. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, I was raised in church, you know, every Sunday, rain or shine. And, uh, but I never wanted to be there. It wasn't until I had psychedelic experiences that I began to have a, a real deep seeking for, for Christ and, and a, a desire to serve the church and the community. I was just going along with whatever my parents demanded of me. But after that psychedelic experience, it was almost like, that deep experiential relationship with God. And some people get that just by sitting in the pew, some by going into the mission field. It just, I didn't have that, that spark in my heart, my mind to just dive headlong into a relationship with Christ until I experienced that. And it wasn't like I had to keep feeding that psychedelic appetite. I could actually live without it. You know, it, it was, it wasn't necessary. It wasn't like a, uh, a pharmaceutical that you take every morning or whatever. I didn't need the psychedelics. Kind of like when you were explaining, you know, your, your research through each one of the compounds, eventually you felt like you had learned most of what you needed to know. And uh, mm -hmm. it, wa it wasn't that you shouldn't use that from time to time again, but it was just it was like you had learned what was there and, and you retained it. You know, it wasn't something that you had to keep chasing after. Right. It was like uh, once you obtained it, you you had the information, you had the the comprehension, the understanding, and you were able to carry that forward with you into the future. Right. Like I'm, I'm kind of at a point right now where I'm, I'm not doing much journey work lately because I don't feel called to it right now. I mean, it doesn't mean I won't. Um, I'm not putting any limitations on myself, but also there's a point where you have to integrate what you've experienced and otherwise why are you doing it i feel like right now i'm at a really good integration point where i'm just consolidating a lot of stuff in my life and then maybe months down the road it'll be time to, to go back but that's right it, it, the, people get worried about them even being addictive they're, they're really anti-addictive like for one if you take too much of it they stop working or <laughs> i'm preaching to the choir here right but all of those fears are, are are certainly a bit silly but anyway yeah well, this cat is kind of out of the bag i mean it's 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 a bit astonishing to me every day just media social media maybe it's because you know i take an active interest in this but it just seems like i'm flooded with Articles, studies from education to medicine to uh, recreational. It is definitely top of mind. Where do you see this going in society? I like to say I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, there will no doubt be horror stories and there will no doubt be um, stories of glory and redemption. But maybe on a, on a wide understanding, like where do you see where do you see this moving society in the next, say, decade to century? That's a hard question. Um, I mean, if you'd asked somebody 10 years ago where we'd be, wouldn't right. be here. We've made mm -hmm. tremendous strides in just the past decade. But there's always the possibility of a backlash, like we saw in the 60s, right? So it's very, we're at a very delicate moment, a very precarious moment, a very hopeful moment. 
but given the vast amount of scientific research that's being done right now, I don't think we're going to go backwards. I think the, the scientific research is going to get more and more robust. The evidence is going to be, be increasingly compelling. And I think the boundary between psychotherapy, psychedelics, and religion are all going to start to get blurred. Those are three disciplines that need to come together to really, I think, affect the kind of personal transformation that, and societal transformation that many of us are yearning for. I, I don't think psychedelics by themselves are, I mean, they're, just, they're a powerful tool. They're neither good nor bad, essentially. But when you pair them with a good religious framework, and you pair them with strong, robust psychological models and roadmaps, and you put those pieces together, then you can radically supercharge the personal transformation in individuals and affect great growth and healing and relief of pain and suffering and trauma. And the more you do that to individuals, the wider the effect that it has on society. I, mean, I, I would say philosophically, I'm, I'm basically what I would call an existentialist philosopher, which is complicated term and big word, but basically it means that the individual is the smallest unit of analysis. Everything has to be understood from an individual perspective of the individual person. And that affects not just our culture, but our, our politics, our economics, all of it. The more we can have that profound, meaningful, impactful, not always positive experience, but positive change experience, then the more we're going to see the kind of next evolutionary step that has to happen if we're going to survive as a species on this very fragile planet. Yeah, I tend to agree. I tend to agree. Well, um, as we close, where would you direct the listeners? Do you have any books, websites, uh, any recommendations for yeah. organizations that people might find valuable, especially people coming from a, you know, a Christian context? Mm, well, that's a hard one. I don't have any specifically Christian resources. I well, not specifically, them. but um, if, if that's part of the list, that would be included as well. Well, I would say for spiritual teaching, for Christian spiritual framework, I would direct people to the writings of Father Richard Rohr, who I admire a great deal. He's got a number of books. The two that I, top of my list, number one is called The Universal Christ, that if you can read The Universal Christ by Richard Rohr and if you and you pair that with psychedelics, you, that's pretty much all you need as a Christian. In this, that's enough to start. That's not all you need, but it's a, that's a great place to start. If you're looking for trauma, kind of you're in a, in a transition space, I would look to a book called Falling Upward, also by Richard Rohr. That'll give you a great place to to go as well. For more practical psychedelic kind of how tos, there's two websites that I use. They kind of just distill information very succinctly. One is called Third Wave, thirdwave.com. And the other one is Double Blind, doubleblindmagazine.com. Those are two good, just, they have a lot of great blogs that are short, reliable information about psychedelics in general. Those would be two places I would turn to. Yes, I have heard of both of those and I have at, on occasion, uh, visited those websites and, and learned a lot. It, websites like that are helpful with keeping up with the current legislation and the current changes from state to state and country to country. That's very helpful as well. Well, Bernardo, any last words? Well, just thank you, Clint. Thank you for your courage in doing this podcast. I really admire the journey that you're on, and I hope we get to talk again in the future. Yeah, the feeling's mutual. I've enjoyed getting to know you and 
and uh, learning a little bit about your work. So I appreciate you once again for joining us today. And uh, I wish you the best, sir. Thank you, Clint. Goodbye. Okay, be well. Thanks again to Bernardo for joining me today. Links to everything he mentioned will be in the show notes, books, websites, etc. I understand that some of you may be very uncomfortable with the establishment of organizations in the psychedelic space calling themselves churches and calling their practices sacraments. Believe me, I get it. I personally believe that culturally religious words like Bible, church, and sacraments are frequently used in disparate contexts and often thrown about rather loosely. Often books on a particular topic will be referred to as the Bible of that topic. For example, someone re might refer to a book as the Bible of bread making or the Bible of contemporary art or the Bible of auto mechanics. And books and other media are also often given such phrases as their actual titles. People will often refer to organizations they are a member of as their church. For example, their sports fraternity, their gym, their hobby club, or even their experiences in nature. Although I personally find such references a bit cringy and disrespectful, it is understandable given that most of us in the West live in societies that have historically recognized the church and the Bible to have gravitas and authority, and so such titles are often used to ascribe authority and respect to other books and institutions. Although our nation's laws and customs often provide a degree of protection and respect for our religious texts and institutions, and make certain legal caveats for the members of these organizations when participating in historic codified sacramental practices of their religion? In fact, in the United States, the First Amendment of our Constitution says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for the redress of grievances. End quote. This is good and necessary. The last thing we want as free citizens is the government deciding which of our religious rights we can and cannot believe, practice, or participate in. However, for better or worse, outside of these narrow religious liberties, our civil governments often prescribe what foods, drinks, and substances free people are allowed to partake in. This has been a particular conundrum since the unconstitutional prohibition and subsequent repeal of alcohol use in the early 20th century and the initiation of the war on drugs in the United States. Such prohibitions have understandably often led people to seek protection under the First Amendment to provide a legal barrier to the government infringing on their right to consume substances that are prohibited, just as the consumption of sacramental wine continued in the Christian churches during alcohol prohibition. There are also a number of Christian churches that have historically incorporated the use of psychedelic substances as part of their traditional practices. I honestly understand very little about these groups, but in the future, 
I wish to explore these traditions on the podcast and host guests from such groups to share with us their theological beliefs and practices. All of that is to say that although I am personally very uncomfortable with people using words such as church and sacraments outside of their strict historical Christian framework, I understand why they find it necessary to do so, given the current legal parameters. And even though I personally find it distasteful, I actually admire their wisdom in navigating the legal hurdles preventing them from exercising their personal liberties. If not for the unconstitutional intervention of government into people's lives via the war on drugs, such tactics would not be necessary. So essentially, I applaud Bernardo and others for navigating this challenging landscape and wish them the best. Also, although I know that Bernardo doesn't exactly practice Christianity the same way I do, and he is far from alone in that category, I acknowledge him as my brother in Christ and I bid him Godspeed on his journey, as I do all of you as well. And with that, in the words of the Apostle Paul, in his second letter to the Church of Corinth, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And until we meet again at the intersection of Christian faith and psychedelics, may the Lord bless you and keep you.